welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Well, folks, as we return now uh, to our study in Acts chapter 5, I'd like to read another statement from the Apostle Paul. Um, as seen in our scripture reading, or scripture readings, uh, this reference is to open doors again for the gospel and is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It appears in verse 9 where Paul describes a, a great door. It's a megas door. Means big, big door. The New American Standard translates this as a wide door. As the Apostle Paul writes, a wide door for effective ministry has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. (laughs) So, as we begin today, uh, never confuse the presence of many adversaries, even powerful and strong adversaries, uh, never interpret that as indicating a closed door for ministry. No, uh, we will find in Acts chapter 5 and verse 17 that adversity uh, for the church, the early church, has, has grown uh, greatly intensified as, as ministry has flourished. We too must anticipate that adversaries uh, can't stand the, to see successes in ministry. Um, those people who will not celebrate advancements for Christ's kingdom, uh, but actually work to undermine the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Apostle Paul would experience later uh, that even some identifying as Christians uh, secretly within their hearts, sought to discredit and undermine, diminish the ministry of God's Word. Uh, Some of them, uh, some of their testimony uh, was against him at his trial as he was held in prison. But Paul found that even prison was a place that provided, supplied open doors for the ministry. Our passage today reveals that Great resistance has arisen among those who, well, they pride themselves as being very religious. Uh, you would think that, that men who constitute the priesthood of the Most High uh, would be the most passionate to support other men uh, like the apostles who are proclaiming the Messiah. And if this council of the Sanhedrin in our passage, you'll really believe the words that God had spoken through the mouths of the prophets. Uh, we should expect that they would be the first to order hats that say, we preach Christ. <laughs> That's not polite to wear hats in church, is it? That can put this together. If you're, I'm not much of a hat wearer. But if you're interested in a hat, please speak to Ken, and uh, he's kind of a hat wearer, I guess. But tragically, 
We've, we've previously discovered it's, it's the re- religious establishment that has resisted the Holy Spirit most of all. And as the church has advanced, that success has spawned resentment amongst the temple priesthood. Uh, in verse 17, uh, this Sanhedrin, uh, that is the highest religious court in the land consisting of about 70 priests, <laughs> they are now ruling that they object. They, they do not like what they see, and they are determined uh, this has got to be stopped. What is the, the this in the narrative? Uh, what is this you know, offensive activity that is, that is, it just must be stopped somehow. Well, as we left off last time in verse 16, scores of people who were crippled and those who are indigent were, were being carried by devout Christians to the Jerusalem temple or, or at least getting them as close as possible so that they could hear the preaching of the apostles. They'd even load them in the cars if needed. Bringing people close. All were being healed. Uh, a benevolent church. A praying church. A preaching church church, a prosperous church, and a proselytizing church is the criminal offense. And actually, the only reason it prospered is because the church was praying and preaching and proselytizing. Would have not prospered in any other way. And as a result, as a consequence of two years of fervent evangelism, thousands of Christians are now gathering corporately together at the temple to pray and listen to teaching. Uh, All of this just makes the high priest named Annas sick. The word in verse 17 we translate jealous. Uh, It's a Greek term for zealous portrays emotions as being red hot. So as I read, jealousy assures us the priests are hostile with envy as they watch this young church grow. And the high priest and his associates are are going to do whatever is within their power to slam the door shut uh, on the preaching of the apostles. We're going to see how that all works out for them. Reading now from verse 17 uh, all the way through verse 32, I've titled today's message, The Church with the Wide Open Door. But the high priest rose up, along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in in a public jail, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. And taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. 
Upon hearing this, the apostles entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, uh, they called the council together, even the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that, that they might be stoned. And guys, do you, do you mind coming downtown? And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So why is this early church growing? Well, the evidence, the courtroom evidence shows that even when strictly threatened not to preach back in chapter 4, the high priest himself has ruled, you have filled the whole city of Jerusalem with your teaching. And it is the boldness that left First Christian Church of Jerusalem with no empty seats. And the priests gazing at those crowds. It's on the far side of the temple. Every week they were jealous. They were stirred to fury. We'll discover that fury next week leads to flogging. A vicious flogging of the twelve apostles. And it is a fury. It's fueled with zeal. That expanding Christian presence at the far side of the temple, was it is leaving the Sadducees very concerned. Folks, this has the potential to turn into Occupy Jerusalem Temple. Conditions are ripe. Because verse 13 had just reminded us 
that the Christians are at this point highly esteemed by everyone. The Sadducees, not so much. No, these elitist Sadducees, they were not especially popular. Uh, remember, they wielded enormous power and privilege uh, because they were born into the Levitical priesthood. Meanwhile, the population of Jerusalem at this time is, is roughly eighty to 100,000. While a conservative estimate places the church at Definitely over 10,000. So, so Christianity has, has swallowed up more than 10% of Jerusalem. Now, now 10% is not insignificant, but it still remains a minority, a marginalized minority. In America, if you have done a, a good bit of evangelism, if you've been struck out on that, uh, uh, to do that, uh, you have come to realize that when you approach strangers randomly throughout your day, or if you go out on a mission, uh, you are going to find that about one in ten Americans have faith in Christ. That's what you will discover when you give them some diagnostic questions. Uh, so I, I would estimate, I could be wrong, this is, this is not scientific poll, uh, I would estimate America to be about 10 to 15% Christian. Yet our Christian experience is moderated by another 70% of Americans who erroneously think that they're Christian. But for one fabricated reason or another. You ask people like me when I was growing up, well, you know, I was, somebody sprinkled water on my head when I was a baby. Um, went through catechism class. You know, I was confer- at the age of 14, my entire class was all confirmed in the faith. It's another ceremony that they have in Lutheranism. And um, all at the same time, we were confirmed. And uh, everybody has a reason. Maybe they feel they're a good person, when in actuality they are a sinner, um, many different fabricated reasons for people to erroneously believe they are a Christian. In contrast to us and our experience, that 10% who lived in Jerusalem, they remain quite marginalized. But boy, they have a good reputation. And verse 14 reminded us that multitudes of new believers were constantly being added day by day uh, so that that ratio that, that swears undivided loyalty, that, that ratio of Jerusalem that swears undivided loyalty to Jesus is growing. And everyone regards these Christians as they're kind, they are respectable, they are generous. Boy, they are also very vocal. That is a big problem for the Sadducees and the priests. Why does such a swelling church present such a problem for them? Uh, Look with me at verse 28. With 12 apostles standing before the entire council of 70 priests, 
the high priest himself declares, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Notice the high priest won't even bring himself to verbalize the name of Jesus. He says, you continue to teach in this name. You intend to bring this man's blood upon our heads. Why would proclaiming Jesus Christ as Israel's Messiah come back to haunt the priests? Is because on the day of Christ's trial in Luke chapter 27, uh, excuse me, that's not correct. But the reference is correct. Is because on the day of Christ's trial, when Pontius Pilate tried to release Jesus, we, we find it was the chief priests and the elders who persuaded the crowds to ask, for Barabbas, and to crucify Jesus. Pilate, seeing the injustice of crucifying a sinless man, he had just washed his hands. He had just washed his hands and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. Well, that isn't true. He was an, an official who allowed an injustice to occur. He was guilty as well. But he said, no, no, I'm not having anything to do with this. Uh, and, and then it was the priests who provoked crowds to yell, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Wow. Imagine a vow like that coming back to bite you. So, so the verdict of this courtroom trial at hand is its guilt. But it's not announced by Annas, the high priest. No, it's, it's actually declared by Peter. In verse 30, Peter replies, but it is you who had Jesus put to death by hanging him on a cross. You know, facts are facts, says Peter. And you are the ones we heard state, you know, let his blood be on us and on our children. Our passage next Sunday uh, tells us that this council becomes infuriated uh, further by that truth. And uh, we have 70 priests here that are culpable for nailing Israel's Christ to a tree. And according to the Mosaic law, prescribed in Deuteronomy 21, um, these priests knew that through that act of hanging Christ on a wooden cross, they were making this public declaration. They said, that man is accursed by God. Have you ever cursed God? I'm not talking about just using the name in vain or flippantly. Have you, have you ever in a, in a fit of rage lashed out to curse God the Father 
or God the Son. Through verbally blaspheming Him directly. Boy, short of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That is about as serious of a sin as you can possibly commit. I had a woman several years ago visit my office. She was extremely distressed. She cried, Pastor, I blasphemed God. For clarification, she said, I, I mean out of anger, I lashed out and I directly cursed God. She was petrified. She said, I don't think I can be forgiven of that. Am I going to hell, Pastor? Can I be forgiven? Well, let's investigate what the passage says. It is the priest who declared, this man is accursed through murdering the Messiah and nailing him to wood. And boy, they have to be contemplating at this time, what then shall happen to us if Christianity continues to grow to where Jerusalem becomes 51% Christian? What's in store for us? They, They probably have not yet realized that Christians don't lash out in revenge. Peter here is not seeking revenge. Uh, he just honestly lays out the, f- the fast facts for them. And when he tells them, you have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet next, what does Peter do? What does he do? As he say, you are all the ones that should be in prison. Does he, do he and the apostles go out on the street and say, start chanting, lock him up, lock them up. Lock all 70 of them up. Is that what Peter does? No. No. In their presence, he, well, he, he again disobeys their command. You know, the high priest just got done saying, do not speak in his name. And Peter replies, you know, we have ears. We, we've heard your command, uh, but your command is only a command of men. We have to obey God. And then in verse 30, Peter sets loose in the courtroom the gospel. He says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. There you have the resurrection. Whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. There you have culpability. You've sinned. But in verse 31, good news. Peter and the apostles say he is the one whom God has exalted to his right hand. He's a prince. He's a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
Repent and believe the gospel. And finally, in verse 32, and we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to all who obey him. He announces the promise by Joel. In these last days, God has poured out his Holy Spirit. But does this all sound eerily familiar to you? It should. We covered it just a couple chapters ago. Peter essentially preaches the same message from two years previous at Pentecost. In Acts 2 verse 38, he said, Repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is the promise for as many as who are called by the Lord God himself. Uh, does Peter's theology conclude uh, that these priests who have identified Jesus Christ and called him accursed, does Peter's theology conclude that they have no potential at all to be saved? Or does he conclude they have the potential to be saved? He does. He does. P Peter is not omniscient. We know that. Peter, Peter is not God. He does not know everything. He doesn't know people's hearts. Uh, he doesn't know if any of these priests will be saved. It's in verse 31 that he assures it is only God himself who can grant repentance. Peter cannot grant repentance. People in and of themselves cannot generate repentance. Like God's gift of faith, only God himself can, rege can regenerate and give the gift of repentance. As Peter announced at Pentecost, the number who repent and believe will be, Acts 2.39 as many as the Lord himself will call. In John 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then this promise, And I will raise him up on the last day. So that divine call, it's effectual. And both repentance and faith are classified in Scripture as being gifts of God. And we know that every good gift comes from above. Uh, James 1 verse 17, every perfect gift, gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, uh, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he literally gave birth to, to us by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The Holy Spirit gives birth. God grants the gifts. Like Peter, all we know is whosoever will, will. And whosoever won't, can't. At least he or she can't until God grants the gift. 
This same assertion will be made by Peter later on in Acts chapter 11, when he will describe how God grants the same gift of repentance to the Gentiles. And it begins with Cornelius. Repentance and faith are granted to the Jews first. Later will also be granted to the Greek. Uh, But the Holy Spirit does not grant the gifts of repentance and faith to all. That would be universal salvation. Scripture does not at all teach that. Uh, No, repentance unto salvation is a gift only to those whom God effectually calls. Uh, But but Peter, he's only a man. He, He does not know who is being called. Peter doesn't know if or who it might be. Uh, Peter knows his job is not to grant repentance or faith, but to preach the gospel. Most certainly, he had not personally concluded these priests were a, you know, a classification of sinners that were just so gross that they could not possibly be saved. Uh, no, to the contrary, Peter and the apostles concluded that according to God's sovereign will, um, they quite possibly can. Likewise, we are to preach the gospel to everyone, withholding the words of life from no one. In just a few more chapters, we're going to be introduced as an example to a Pharisee who's named Saul, Uh, who later describes himself as a blasphemer of God. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1. But according to God's power and choice, he becomes an apostle named Paul. Because God's grace is, he says, is more than abundant to save even the chiefest of sinners, including you, including me. Christ died once for all sins. Repent and believe the gospel. But the high court has decided, uh, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to put a lid on this. Uh, they, they began by putting the apostles in prison. Uh, they're going to continue next week by a brutal flogging. But folks, it it is just impossible to stick a cork in the gospel. The priest tried locking them up. (laughs) An angel of the Lord came and just swung that door wide open again. And that angel said, verse 20, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. It's the whole message of this life. That means speak the totality of the message. Hold nothing back. Preach the word. What the phrase implies is, we don't dull the sharp tip of the spirit sword into a butter knife. Don't blunt God's instrument of salvation. You know, hoping to make it sound a a little more pleasant, a, a little more 
palatable to people. Speak the whole message, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, uh, both joints and marrow, and even able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's Hebrews 4, verse 12. Folks, God knows the sword is sharp. He forged it that way. God purposely made His Word. He he fashioned His Word so that it would cut deep, even to the division of soul and spirit. God knows that. And it's God who opens the doors. You know, He first opened the door of this prison. He sends out the apostles through an angel, word from an angel, and sends them out into the temple courtyard uh, where they would just be arrested again within a couple more hours. But God opened the door. A couple hours later, they'll be standing in front of the Sanhedrin so that God can open another door to preach in front of them And regardless of the scenery, the apostles never, never refrain from being bold. No matter what the atmosphere is, prison bars or open temple or in the surrounding cities. Um, Next week, after they are brutally punished, God is going to open another door. And as a result of that open door, a godly man named Stephen is going to die. Folks, it is the imprisoned and the persecuted church that becomes the church with the wide open door. In regards to this passage, uh, John Calvin, he he was no stranger to Christian persecution in his day. He had seen uh, quite a number die for the faith. Um, Many Christians in his homeland of France were martyred. Um, We realize there is a point to flee. There's a time where if you have to, you get lowered, uh, lowered out of a city in a basket if you have to. Calvin ended up having to continue his work in Switzerland. Um, Nonetheless, Calvin chides any preacher who after being arrested for preaching, but subsequently is released, who would then conclude to himself, you know, I'm glad I'm out of there. Maybe I better tone it down a little more going forward. Soften it up just a bit. But avoid offending anyone going forward. No, no, that was not the apostolic method. It's not. Calvin writes, quote, The Lord opened the prison for them, that they might be at liberty to fulfill their function. That is worth noting, he says, because we see many men who after they have escaped out of persecution do afterwards keep silent as if they had fulfilled their duty towards God uh, and were to no more be troubled. 
Others also do escape away by denying Christ, writes Calvin, uh, but the Lord delivers his children, not so that they may cease the course which they have begun, but rather that they may be the more zealous afterwards. A little prison time made the apostles even more zealous. I might be slightly more generous than, than Calvin toward persecuted preachers uh, released from prison today by acknowledging the apostles at least had the benefit of an angel uh, who provided them specific directions once the prison doors swung open. But uh, Calvin is at the same time correct because the following timeless principle made by the angel in this passage applies both to the apostles and to us. Threats are not to stop us. Imprisonment is not to stop us. And when persecuted next week, the flogging is not to stop us either. God's point of the message from the angel. This is just to reiterate. Scripture's point from the message of the angel, if I may, is that even experiences of persecution and imprisonment shall not blunt the tip of our message. Verse 20, go speak to the people the whole message of this life. Not your own politely adapted message. Therefore, no circumstances will ever arise, regardless of how severe, that will allow us to soften or adjust the pointedness of the gospel nor justify our abandoning of our ministry. No circumstance shall arise. Conclusion? Like the Energizer Bunny, we will just keep going and going and going. Anticipating all the while there will be a wide open door for effective ministry and there will be many adversaries. Here are four closing questions. It should make application of this passage intuitive to us. Shouldn't have to interpret uh, much further than this. Number one, what made the apostles so bold and effective? Answer, they knew precisely what they were called to do. They preached an uncompromised and an unadulterated gospel whenever they encountered an open door. And they relied upon God to open every door. God opens doors. They did not rely upon a softened message, though it was a polite message polite as they could be in and of themselves. They were seasoned with grace. 
but they did not rely upon a softened message, lavish entertainment, or even great coffee. They didn't even put up bounce houses to attract young families. The apostles boldly stepped through God's open door. Question number two. Why are we so afraid? Psalm 118, it's intensely messianic. That means it speaks directly about Christ, uh, revelatory of Jesus. Um, It's therefore the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. It points directly at Jesus and includes this famous line of poetry. Quote, the Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the answer, we must push to determine if the door is open. Push to see if the door is open and when it is, be bold enough to step through. If you are respectful, if you are filled with grace, and I know you all are, well, short a couple. (laughs) We're all working on it. We're all working on being loving. Uh, We're respectful. We're filled with grace. We behave well. That person can't hurt you, folks. The worst that can happen is they can say no, or they can give you a dirty look and turn their head away. It isn't as if we're going to be arrested or cast into prison or violently be flogged as the apostles were. Folks, we, we must confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Uh, But we must confess this sin and repent of being so unwilling of experiencing any form of embarrassment for Christ when it is not embarrassment at all. It is not embarrassment for Christ. It is boldness in Christ. It is not embarrassing to be a witness for our Lord and Savior, the Prince of Life. Number three, what makes the difference between us and this early church? I know there are several periphery differences, but but one in particular, what makes the difference between us and the early church? Answer, the difference is prayer. The prayers which that church uttered corporately when they were gathered together, they were concrete. They covered substantive matters of the church. Evangelism, generosity, service to one another, etc., etc. 
received a a couple of messages from Matthew Rubin uh, just a couple days ago uh, by Alistair Begg speaking about service, speaking about uh, uh, deacons serving the church. We need to be praying that we will be servants. You need to talk to Matthew Rubin if, uh, if you want those messages. He will send them to you or talk to me afterwards. I'll point you to him. Uh, but Alistair Begg does a, does a mighty fine job of, uh, of sticking everybody right where it hurts, male and female, as politely as I, anyone can imagine. He's just got that skill. There are concrete matters of the kingdom. You know, if, if you have a boo-boo or you've lost your binky, you, you have 24 hours a day to make every request be made known to God. You can utilize your time. Uh, the corporate prayer prayer gathering must focus on us uttering aloud uh, scriptural priorities uh, during that short time that we spend together each Wednesday evening. Um, Proverbs 28 tells us the, the righteous are as bold as a lion. If we're not bold, we, we kind of have to ask ourselves a few things about righteousness. In chapter 4, and in the face of threats of persecution, the early church responded by praying to speak God's word with boldness. In chapter 5, God dispatched an angel as a direct answer to their prayer. And the angel said, well, here's your open door. Go speak boldly. Folks, uh, there occurs a divine manifestation of God's power when we hear our When our ears hear our voices uttering prayers with confidence, and when we hear the prayers of others amongst us uttered in confidence, prayers like, Lord, cause us to speak boldly. God, God, change us to show compassion towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Father, remind me to visit those who are sick. Cause us all to reach out to the brothers and sisters who are shut in. These are the will of God. Men, Men praying aloud in prayer meeting, God, make me a better husband, while their wife is sitting right next to them. Father, save my children from your wrath. Send your spirit, do it through faith in the blood sacrifice of your son uh, while your children are sitting within earshot. There are weighty things of the kingdom we need to persist in praying. Very weighty things, just a sampling. The same effect just doesn't occur when we're, when we're asked to pray for your auntie's sprained finger in Springfield.
I'm going to be honest, and unless it's life-threatening, I don't really care about your auntie's spraying finger. It doesn't move me with passion. I don't want to see her suffer. Because you've never seen spraying fingers become a priority of prayer in Scripture. I've never met your auntie. I'm sure she's nice. There's nothing I can do to help her. And you've got 24 hours a day to make all your requests be made known to God. And so does she. Hezekiah, when he was in a distressed situation, uh, he prayed alone by himself, said, Lord, deliver this uh, me from this situation. And God answered. Some pointed applications, obviously. Uh, you know, last week, Russell Lauks went through a, a very serious condition, life-threatening even, and we prayed passionately that he would be restored, and by God's grace, it appears he has been. But corporate prayer meetings need to focus primarily on our function in this kingdom as we are priests of the Most High, and prayer needs to remain substantive. Because by God's provident design and sovereign decree, Christ's kingdom will advance in Port St. Lucie accordingly to how we commit ourselves to pray as we are assembled with one another as one body. We're going to learn more about prayer in Acts chapter 6. As we hear, hear the apostles are going to declare, uh, we will devote ourselves to prayer. So the early church was bold and effective because they embraced precisely what they were called to do. We are afraid, meanwhile, for no reason at all. And the greatest difference between us and them is that their passion and the subject which they prayed were weighty. Were weighty. Prayer isn't a change. We aren't to adapt that any more than the Word. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, as we close, uh, in Acts chapter 4 and 5, the, the church prayed that they would speak boldly while stepping through an open door. Thirty years later, the Apostle Paul wrote the church in Colossae. He said, devote yourselves to prayer. Pray for me also that there will be an open door for the word and that I may speak it in the way I ought. In Ephesians, he said, that I may speak it boldly, with all boldness. Ephesians chapter 6. Thirty years of time elapses. The essential content of scriptural prayer has not changed one bit. Acts chapter 4 is not a one-time thing. Oh, we pray for this. We prayed for that last week. We prayed for open doors last week. We've covered that. Let's move on to something else for the next 52 weeks. Uh-uh. No, we have to be persistent in prayer. Not mechanical, not, uh, not carbon copy, uh, lifeless, but with passion uh, 
to, to have a heart for things which God calls us to do. Um, folks, these are the reasons, or at least some of the major reasons, why the early church became the church with a wide open door. Why then should we expect open doors if we rely upon anything else? Final question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we watch this fledgling church enter into a distressing time, and uh, yet their courage and uh, their willingness to be used by you to serve you and your holy word uh, doesn't get blunted at all. In fact, they're willing to double down, increase the ante, even to the point where a man will lose his own life. And Father, as we, we generally have it uh, quite safe here, we're thankful for that. So thankful that generally uh, the United States continues to uh, see Christianity as palatable. Um, yet in some ways it's made us weak. And we would pray that you would orchestrate anything you need to do uh, to make us strong. That we would uh, proclaim your word. That we would be the nicest and most respectable, yet the most bold people in Port St. Lucie. And that somehow, according to your sovereign plan, as you grant repentance and you grant faith, that you would use that according to your measure handling the things that we just don't see behind the scenes, but you are building a kingdom. You're going to give it to your son. Uh, He will inherit it here on earth, and he will be glorified by all who call on his name. Father, make us a part of that. Cause us to be families and husbands and wives who love one another and, and speak speak truth before one another that even our children to hear, and they would understand what prayer truly is, Lord. Thank you for these people this day, this, this gathering, attentive ears wanting to, wanting to hear what your Spirit says. Lord, I pray this would be uh, accurately representing what the Spirit has taught us through your Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.